Hello, and welcome to the Burning Issue podcast. My name is Luke Walsh, and I'm the editor of the website EndsWasteAndBioEnergy.com. On this podcast, I've been talking to people on all sides of the energy from waste debate and looking into how the UK has transformed from landfilling its waste to processing it through energy recovery. As a result, the UK has close to 60 operational EFW facilities, but it also has its fair share of stalled and even failed projects too. But the life of a struggling project doesn't end when construction stops, and increasingly, with problematic builds, it moves on to the courts. However, a lot of these are dealt with through behind-closed-doors arbitrations, which for people like me in the media can be very frustrating, but it is also increasingly big business for lawyers. So to try and find out what happens when EFW contracts go wrong, I'm talking to Chris Philpott, who is a senior associate with international law firm Trowers and Hamlins. Hello, Chris. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, Luke. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. I'm an avid listener, so it's great to speak to you and to give you and your listeners a lawyer's view and a legal perspective on energy from waste projects. Thank you very much. When it comes to EFW, when do lawyers get involved? Is it mainly before a contract's signed or is it more when things go wrong or is it a mixture of both? I guess I'd use that old familiar adage of, you know, prevention is better than cure. And it's so true in virtually all walks of life and the energy from waste industry really is no different. You know, lawyers should and do generally get involved at the contract drafting stage to agree the terms on which the project will be delivered. The client will generally be driving the key dates concerning project delivery timescales, when, for example, construction will complete, commissioning is going to start, and when the plant will become operational. Equally, as lawyers will be guided by the client and their appointed experts as to the fuel specification requirements to be agreed and you know what's achievable in terms of energy outputs. And at the same time, we as lawyers will work with the client and negotiate the key commercial terms with the lawyer or in-house legal team acting for the employer or the subcontractor or the contractor, depending on who you're acting for. And these terms can really often make the difference between financially successful projects and one that is unsuccessful. The kind of commercial terms that would be negotiated would include, for example, what rate of liquidated damages will be payable if the project is not delivered to the timescales of the project. Should performance damages be paid if certain performance outputs are not achieved? You know, if so, should there be caps on those liabilities and what the caps should be? Should it be the total value of the contract sum or should it be 10% of the contract sum? Or should it be something different? And I guess it comes down sometimes to how commercially bullish we're all feeling and how much we really want the project to go ahead. Who's providing the parent company guarantee? How much is that parent company going to guarantee? You know, where's that parent company based in the world? How easy is it going to be to enforce against that parent company should things go wrong? There's those kind of questions as well as does the design and the technology have to work as intended? You know, is it kind of a strict liability obligation, a fitness for purpose obligation? Or does the contractor just have to perform the works in a non-negligent way, use a reasonable skill and care, which is the usual obligation that you'd find in these kinds of contracts? And equally, you know, what about adjudication? You know, the right to statutory adjudication in general construction contracts doesn't apply to energy from waste projects. So do the parties want to agree the contractual right to adjudicate or or does the client only want to have the option of arbitration or court litigation if the project doesn't quite go to plan? 
So I think there's a sort of a myriad of things really to think about and to protect yourself against. And so I think it's important to have good lawyers who are well versed in large process plant and construction projects like Trowers and Hamlins to advise at the outset so that you are best protected under the contract before you start. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting you mentioned the international aspect of the energy from waste side, because one of our previous guests, Simon Ma, who's Australian-based, said the increased presence of lawyers in EFW build negotiations was never good. But I think you might disagree with that. Lawyers often get a bad rep and uh, they're often seen, in my opinion, wrongly as either getting in the way or making matters more complicated than they need to be. I think it's a bit unfair. I think the presence of lawyers, and when I say lawyers, I mean lawyers like Trowers who are experienced in energy from waste projects or process plants and who have that kind of practical first-hand experience of seeing these projects in action, seeing the problems that arise and the claims that are so frequently made. And having that type of lawyer involved in drafting the contracts on those sort of key financial and commercial terms that I mentioned earlier, such as liquidated damages rates and caps on liability, as well as kind of the best dispute resolution terms. I think that can only really be a good thing. The clearer the contractual terms and the more defined each party's obligations are, the far less likely the parties are to then have a dispute. So whilst I can definitely sympathise with Simon that you can definitely have too many lawyers, hopefully the lawyers that the industry are now using are familiar with energy from waste projects and that those lawyers are using their experience to negotiate clear and fair commercial terms that can really help these projects to be successful. Your focus is obviously largely on EFW plants. Why have so many ended up in arbitration? Is it a higher percentage than other comparable industries, do you think? I think it is, Luke. It is a higher percentage. Whilst gasification and combustion technology has been around for many, many years, since the Victorian times, and has been operated successfully on various projects around the world on various different fuel types like wood chip, biomass, commercial waste... Now, when it's come to trying to get that technology to operate successfully with refuse-derived fuel, that black pin bag waste, it's just been difficult. The technology has sometimes just been unable to perform as we would all want it to. You know, many of these projects have experienced delays to commissioning, reduced operational output, and ultimately higher maintenance costs. So I think it really comes down to the challenge of operating these plants with RDF and within the fuel envelope that's agreed for the project. And that fuel envelope is really critical to get right. And there can be no doubt about it that RDF as a fuel source and achieving gasification is just really challenging. It's a really challenging process. And yet we have a very clear need for this globally to get rid of the waste and to stop landfill, which obviously has this very serious environmental impact. It's interesting. You mentioned that the problem with the RDF to gasification projects, and I mean, they send a shiver down the spine of developers and EPC contractors alike now, because they do seem to end up in the courts more often than not. Is that just because the gasification technology used hasn't been successful or are there other reasons? I think it was because of the gasification technology, unfortunately, just not operating as everyone's expected and combined with the challenges of processing RDF. And it seems to me from the developer side, there's an expectation that you might have to take legal action if planning doesn't go your way. But the litigation involving contractors seems to be a bit more out of the blue and a a surprise for a few companies. Is that right? 
I guess with planning consents, they'll likely always be challenged in the first instance because there is presumably an expectation that the planning experts or the planning lawyers that planning for the plant was going to be awarded, which is why presumably the application was made in the first place. So it's quite natural, as you say, to sort of challenge these planning decisions. I think with litigation between employers and contractors or contractors and their subcontractors, a lot of it is going on behind closed doors through adjudications where the parties have agreed contractual adjudication processes as it's a confidential dispute resolution process. And then one only knows about it, only comes out in the public domain if someone doesn't pay the adjudicator's award and suddenly someone has to go to court to to enforce it. So otherwise, with, with sort of arbitrations and court litigation, claims will usually be bubbling away beneath the surface, usually until the project comes to an end. And then depending on the level of delay, the losses that have been suffered, and importantly also, you know, the personalities of those who are in charge at these companies, what's their appetite for litigation? It either goes to litigation or it doesn't. And sometimes with skilled negotiations, perhaps early mediations, director level meetings where you have the right personalities, litigation can and often is avoided with a great cost saving and also with the professional relationships intact, which is obviously the most desirable result for everyone that can be achieved. And you want to keep a professional relationship with your EPC side. They've obviously signed a contract and it contains a long stop date if they miss that date, they risk being removed from the project. This, I guess, is where you come in. But legally, is it sounds just kick off at a contractor if the target dates have been missed? I mean, you need the contractual right to be able to do so in the first instance. So you'll want to have very clear wording in the contract giving you that right. And if you're going to trigger that process, then you need to be very careful that you do it in line with the mechanism. Otherwise, you as the employer will find yourself in in breach of contract on the receiving end of a damages claim, which you wouldn't want. So, I mean, is it a good thing? I mean, it really comes down, I think, to the specific circumstances of each case. What's inevitable for the employer in taking that step is a significant amount of additional time and cost of getting a new contractor on site and getting that contractor up to speed with the project. And they'll also be taking on someone else's technology, which is never going to be simple. And then you are presumably going to have to try and recover all of those additional costs back from the original contractor. So you're almost going down a route of of almost inevitable sort of litigation. But I think it does really depend on the circumstances of the situation. At the same time, if the employer has lost all faith and confidence in their contractor and they've hit this sort of long stop date and they, and they have the right to trigger the termination, then perhaps there's no option but to cut ties and then try and deal with those sort of the financial consequences afterwards. You've kind of covered a bit of this, but if you're on either side of it, the EFW plant developer or the EPC contractor... Obviously, apart from hire you early on, what should I do to avoid falling into some of the pitfalls you've mentioned? You're right. I mean, have a good lawyer at the contract negotiation phase and also during the project delivery phase. I'll often advise clients during the construction and commissioning phases of a contract to to support them in issuing the correct uh, notices on time to preserve claims. And which is all too often one of the many pitfalls that contractors and employers fall into. Sometimes these notification clauses are drafted as a condition precedent, which means if you've suffered a delay or you've incurred additional cost 
just not as a result of your actions, and then you don't formally notify the other party within a specific time frame in a particular format, you forever then lose your right to recover payment of that additional cost. So it really is imperative to understand the obligations you have in terms of notifying claims or variations and then complying with those obligations. The other key point, which I've already touched on, is the need to have clearly worded obligations. I'd like to go back to another bit you mentioned earlier. You were talking about the waste suppliers and when a developer has a demand for a particular specification of feedstock, with you it's mainly the RDF. And I'm guessing people are asking for a specific calorific value perhaps. But what's your experience when it comes to a feedstock deal gone wrong? Contracts will have a fuel envelope, like I mentioned earlier. So a specification for the fuel stating the required calorific value and the permitted elements of, say, aluminium, metals, water content, and many, many more. And the technology provider will generally want the fuel envelope to be well-defined and within a narrow envelope, because if it's technology that's been operated commercially elsewhere, they will have a good idea or should hopefully have a good idea about the type of fuel that it's able to process. On the other hand, the employer will generally want a wider fuel specification. So there's less scope for the contractor to argue that the fuel is outside of that specification. And this is the cause of problems being experienced with the plant. So it's important in these circumstances for the contract to be clear as to what happens when feedstock is supplied that's not within the agreed fuel specification. Who's monitoring the fuel quality? When is that monitoring taking place? How long before the fuel actually goes into the plant is it being monitored? How is that information being shared? Is there an obligation to share the fuel feed information? And if so, how frequently... Does the contractor have the right to stop processing fuel that's out of specification? If so, then what costs are the contractor entitled to recover? And how are those costs going to be assessed? From the practical side, you know, what's done with the fuel that isn't going to be put through the facility if it's out of spec? Is there enough storage space on site for it to be stored? And what happens to it? So all of these types of questions really need to be dealt with early on so that the contracts deal adequately with them and so the parties know where they stand. Now I know you've got a lot of experience in the wind power side so you must have experience with the contracts for different subsidy scheme known as the CFD. It funded a lot of wind power projects but it was also used to support EFW developments but do you feel from a legal point of view the government subsidies towards EFW have worked as intended? I think more can be done, more needs to be done to encourage investment in new energy from waste projects. You know, rocks worked uh, well until they were stopped in around 2017. But I think if governments are serious about cutting landfill, that more investment needs to be made into energy from waste. And, And the only way really is to provide tax incentives or other financial incentives to really attract that inward investment, whether it be from UK based investment or internationally. What I found particularly surprising was was Scotland's approach of putting an embargo on any new energy from waste plants, but then at the same time announcing that they plan on stopping all landfill by 2025, so in two years' time. It seems like utter madness, and it sort of leaves the question of, you know, where's that waste going to go? England. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask more about the policy side of things. I'm glad you brought it in there. One of the things that's coming up is the Environment Bill. It brought in a legal mandate to halve the waste per person that is sent to residual treatment by 2042. But from a lawyer's point of view, is this even achievable? 
I mean, who knows? It seems unlikely to me, given the amount of waste that we seem to be generating and which generally doesn't seem to be reducing. I think it's it's an ambitious target and we really need to see some real changes in, in human behaviour, you know, when it comes to uh, recycling and possibly the number of recycling plants is likely to have to increase significantly to deal with increased recycling rates if this is the plan. For the world outside the UK, I think the continued construction of energy from waste facilities that can remove that household waste and convert it to electricity is only going to continue and increase and I think it will ultimately become an important part of our sort of circular economy where waste is really seen as a valuable financial commodity. Thanks Chris I understand so the final question I ask everyone on the Burning Issue podcast is what's the question I should have asked you and how would you have answered it? You've asked some great questions Luke I don't know if any I mean I guess uh, what are the top three easy wins to avoid a dispute? First one is I think know who you're getting into bed with due diligence is key on this technology obtain as much operating data as possible to see whether claims can really be backed up Secondly, I'd say ensure you have a contract which is drafted and negotiated by good lawyers, ones who are experienced in energy from waste and process plants generally. Having those clearly defined terms and clearly defined obligations so the parties know exactly what is expected of each of them will likely reduce the scope for disputes. Finally, I guess, know your contracts, love your contracts, and above all else, know what the contract says, you know, it really is your friend. Don't sign it and then put it in a drawer until a dispute arises, which is far more common than you might think. What I find clients benefit from most is sort of sitting down with me and my team before a project begins or at the early stages of a project and we go through the key terms and what needs to be done when and how do you serve notices and when do those notices need to be served and what's the impact if they're not served properly. Best of all, for your listeners, Charles and Hamlins will often do that type of training for a very low cost, sometimes even free. And you don't hear that very often from a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, free advice from a lawyer. And I love the uh, term, love your contracts. <laughs> I think that is a good way to end on. Thank you, Chris, very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me. All that's left for me to do is say thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please do share it with your networks, either in person or online. It's very much appreciated. And finally, this is the last episode of Series 2. And while The Burning Issue will return after a summer break, there are now a total of 14 episodes to listen to. So if you've missed any of the previous ones, go and give them a listen on your favourite download platform or via endswasteandbioenergy.com. Goodbye for now.